0: Hello, AJT readers, this is Josh Levitsky, and we're coming to you from AJT Highlights. This is the November podcast. Happy fall, everybody. As always, uh, Roz Mannon is here with me as my co-host for AJT Highlights, and today we have a special guest, our editorial fellow, uh, Marlene Cano, who is a pulmonologist, a lung transplant researcher who just started at uh, Washington University as an instructor. Doing mostly basic science, but is our editorial fellow this month and we'll be reviewing a couple papers. So let me go through the table of contents here of what papers we're going to be discussing. We have four this month, and I'll do this in order of how they're going to be presented. So Marlene will start off with um the first paper, which is entitled Post-Transplant Mortality and Graft Failure After Induction Immunosuppression Among Among Black Heart Transplant Recipients in the United States by Salia et al. And then that will be followed by paper entitled pre-transplant kidney transcriptome captures intrinsic donor organ quality and predicts 24 month outcomes by Archer et al. with, an um, editorial that's attached to that by Helen Terra and Devard. And then, uh, Roz will move towards discussing a, a paper entitled renal inflammaging which is a, a nice... Uh, I like how they did that. Inflammaging, provokes intragraft inflammation following experimental kidney transplantation by he et al. And then I will finish uh, with the report, a single center analysis of organ offers and workload for liver and kidney allocation by uh, Reddy et al. with a nice editorial by Ather and Hussein. So without further ado, um, Marlene, I'd like to uh, welcome you here to our podcast and get you started discussing the first paper. Thanks thanks for being here.
1: Perfect. Thank you. And thank you for the introduction and for allowing me to be here. So uh, I guess I'll uh, go ahead and write, uh, dive right in. Um, so the first paper is the post-transplant uh, mortality and graft failure after induction immunosuppression among black heart transplant recipients in the U.S., and so really the objective of this paper is to determine whether prescribing induction immunosuppression improves outcomes in black heart transplant recipients. They're specifically looking at an all-cause mortality, graft failure, and acute rejections as outcomes. Uh, a little bit of background from this paper, um, they discussed that you know previous studies have shown that compared to white patients, uh, black heart transplant recipients have a higher rate of all-cause mortality and graft failure they actually discussed a paper uh, published uh, by Meridian colleagues, uh, the Johns Hopkins group, that shows that there is a 29% increase in mortality in black heart transplant recipients, but it actually can be up to two times as high in specific subgroups. So black males, black young males, ages 18 to 30, for example. And this is, of course, adjusting for all the variables that they would otherwise, you know, would all adjust for. Additionally, black heart transplant recipients are considered at high risk for acute rejection. Now, the current treatment guidelines suggest or recommend that patients that are considered high risk for acute rejection, that they would benefit from the use of induction immunotherapy. It appears that that's the way that we are practicing. So a recent study, both by this group as well as supported by the Meridia group, showed that indeed black heart transplant recipients have a 28% increase odds of receiving induction therapy compared to non-black transplant patients. But the question they're asking is, is this appropriate? So is treating black patients specifically with induction immunotherapy truly beneficial? And they sort of discussed this in the setting of a meta-analysis by Brasuli and colleagues from the University of Iowa that showed that, you know, there really didn't seem to be a difference in all-cause mortality between patients who received induction therapy and those who didn't. Of course, that study was done in predominantly non Black patients, so perhaps not directly applicable. But also, the Meridia study, uh, one of their subgroup analyses showed that compared to no induction therapy, the use of an IL 2 receptor antagonist were actually associated with higher mortality. And just it has a ratio about 1.12, even after accounting for a few things. And so, really, again, they're short of saying no studies have focused exclusively on this topic of the use of induction therapy on Black recipients to determine if these recommendations um, are appropriate. So the methods uh, that they use, basically they're using the scientific registry of transplant recipients and OPTN. Um, They identified 5,160 hard transplant recipients that reported as Black or as African-American between 2008 and 2018. The outcomes, as I mentioned, are all-cause mortality, graft failure, and incidence of acute rejection. Induction immunotherapy is defined as either receiving anti-thymocyte antibodies, ILT receptor antagonists, and CD2 monoclonal antibodies in the peritransplant period. Their findings or the results are that, you know, baseline characteristics, in general, those who received induction therapy tended to have a lower GFR, were on dialysis, were perhaps admitted to the ICU or hospitalized at the time of transplant. They had higher likelihood of having HLA mismatch and were on steroids at the time of transplantation. They also were less likely to be on bad at the time of transplant. The more common induction therapy used was L-receptor antagonists followed by the anti-thymocyte antibodies. So their overall findings basically were that 23% of the patients in the induction group And 23% of the patients in the no induction group had graft failure or mortality in the median follow-up time period, which for them was three years, a range of about one to six years time period. They used statistical analysis, Kaplan-Meier survival curve, adjusted Cox proportional regression analysis, really just to identify that the use of induction therapy ultimately did not seem to benefit or to offer any benefit in mortality or in graft failure. They also looked at outcomes within the first year after transplant because this is a time period during which these disparities are at the highest for this patient population and also saw no mortality or graft failure benefit at this time point. The only differences that they found uh, were regarding the incidence of acute rejection. I believe this is figure 1D, where they actually showed that there was more patient's who were in the induction group that had higher incidences of acute rejection than those in the non-induction group. So again, no benefit uh, for the use of induction uh, in this regard. Then they did some sub-analysis, so one thing that they looked at is, well, does it matter um, regarding mortality or graft failure which induction therapy they used? Um, They did not actually see any differences. Uh, To be fair, they do comment that by this time point, their uh, groups had gotten somewhat small and perhaps they didn't have the power um, to uh, detect these differences. But two other important things is, one, they found that there was a tendency, a slight tendency towards decreased mortality, so perhaps a little bit of benefit in certain high-risk populations within this group. So they defined these as patients who were perhaps had uh, greater than 4-HLA mismatches, uh, patients who were young, so less than 25 years of age, and who were not on bad at the time of transplant. But there was also some uh, uh, thought that there was a slightly higher rate for uh, mortality, super heart, perhaps a slight concern associated with the use of induction therapy in patients that had less than five HLA mismatches, which I would take to mean that they were perhaps a lower risk uh, subgroup. And so, overall, in terms of their conclusions, they report that, yes, you know, there is previous evidence that there are poorer outcomes uh, post-transplant in black heart transplant recipients. Yes, the recommendations are that there should be use of induction therapy for those that are at high risk, but the study concludes that... Um, perhaps the use of induction therapy specifically sort of a blanket in all black heart transplant recipients as a whole, or the use of race as a high risk variable in itself does not provide mortality or graft failure benefit. Um, But that, of course... There can be subgroups. So certain high risk groups within this group that could benefit. Then again, there could also be certain subgroups within this group that could have harm. And of course, we all know that, you know, induction therapy is not without its harmful effects, such as infections or malignancies. And so I think the overall takeaway moving forward from this paper is that, you know, the authors recommend that perhaps there just needs to be a a reassessment of the current recommendations that include black, Heart transplant recipients as a high risk group, blanketly in this regard.
2: Great summary, um, Marlene. Because I used to be at a center where many of our recipients were of African American origin, and I hate to say it, I was always taught, well, the 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 and and in fact, in some large one of the more recent trials comparing rabbit ATG and Campath in kidney, they lumped all the black patients as high risk, and the studies using mycophenolate had a different baseline amount of therapy uh, between Blacks and not. And I think it goes to show us that we need better refined tools to to discuss immunologic risk. So I like this paper in that it disputes that all Black people are gonna do worse. And, and again, it takes, you know, understanding that part of that history may be related to structural barriers and accessing care and paying for their meds forever. Um, right. But I, I think it'd be, it's such a great time now that we can do molecular matching and we should be looking yes. at a more refined way, because I would just love if we could do a priority, you know, at coming into transplant, we could do that and say, boy, you've got like 50 epaulets, you need thymo or whatever. So yes. great, great summary. I don't know, Josh, if you have any. Other yeah, thoughts?
0: no, I, I I agree. I think um, what it really gets to is is personalizing the approaches And not lumping, you know, a population together and treating them all the same way. I think we're we're moving more into the era of of personalized approaches in transplant. And um, also, you know, the polymorphism polymorphisms in drug metabolism um, could be, Mm. you know, playing a role here too, that could be leading to some differential outcomes rather than, you know, just you know racial differences. So it it really does. Um, I think this is important. I, I think that the question I would have uh, to heart transplanters is whether this is going to change their practice. Seeing this, mm. these results, um, is this going to change their their protocols? And it, it takes a lot often to change pro- center-specific protocols, but maybe it'll enlighten them into to look at these patients in a more you know specific, personalized way than right. than grouping them. Right. right. All right. Yeah. Great. That's a great. That's great. Thanks for reviewing that. Do you want to move on to the Archer paper?
1: Sure. All right. So the title of this paper, as you mentioned previously, is "Pre-Transplant Kidney Transcriptome Captures Intrinsic Donor Organ Quality and Predicts 24-Month Outcomes." So the background uh, is that this is a prospective multi-center study. Uh, It aimed to develop and to validate a multivariable model that combines both baseline clinical characteristics um, of donor kidneys pre-transplant, as well as their transcriptomic data, Um, and then of course they use these to predict. long-term graft function uh, 24 months after transplant. Currently, uh, they discuss that the evaluation of donor organ quality depends largely on the use of the kidney donor profile index or the KDPI, uh, which is a numerical score that combines 10 donor characteristics. Also in use is histology evaluation of core biopsies um, that are collected prior to transplantation, which have been used to predict short-term outcomes. Um, They discuss these as being about six-month outcomes, but that these do not correlate with uh, long-term outcomes outcomes. Uh, in terms of their methods, again, this is a multi-center prospective study. It includes four transplant centers, uh, Virginia Commonwealth, University of Virginia, Montefiore Medical Center, and the University of Tennessee Health Science Center. They enrolled 295 DC's donor kidney transplant recipients. Um, they separate these into a training set. Uh, these are patients that were enrolled at VCU and UVA or an external validation set. And these are patients that were enrolled at Montefiore and University of Tennessee. 25 patients were excluded due to various things, loss of follow-up, core uh, RNA integrity, microarray quality control criteria. So in the end, what they have is 174 patients in this training set, 96 patients in this external validation cohort. Um, the tissue was abstained shortly before transplantation. The gene expression of the biopsies were measured using the Affymetrix gene chip microarray. And then the endpoints really were graft function 24 months after transplant. And so they stratified these into low graft function. So that was um, uh, those that had a GFR of less than 45, 24 months after transplant. And high function, those were patients that had a GFR of greater than 45. So then they used a variety of statistical uh, methods, uh, list linear mixed model effects, uh, as well as univariate multivariate regression models, really to identify a set of genes that were most significantly uh, different between these groups. And after they did that, they generate this risk score that then they use to apply to their validation cohort. In terms of their results, so uh, from the 104, 174 recipients that were in the training set, 38% of these had low graft function, 61% of these had high graft function, 24 months after transplant. On average, really the only differences between these groups was that the high function group had younger donor kidneys, and then there was also differences in terms of donor race and donor BMI. There was actually no differences in the recipient bar- variables between between these groups. In the molecular markers that discriminated outcomes at 24 months, um, they found 595 unique genes that were differentially expressed, 408 of these were upregulated, 187 of these were downregulated in the low-functioning kidneys. They discussed that the upregulated genes included genes that uh, predominantly induce uh, the innate and the adaptive immune responses. They did cell type enrichment analysis, and they identified the dendritic cells, monocytes, myeloid, and NK cells were sort of the main sources for these uh, upregulated genes. And then that the downregulated genes involved uh, predominantly metabolic processes, so carbon, glucose metabolism, TCA cycle. From this, they formed these multivariable models uh, to predict Graph functioning at 24 months. They had four models. One of them used donor characteristics alone. One of them used gene expression alone. These were, I believe, about 55 probe sets. Third was this mixed model that used gene expression plus the donor characteristics, the three donor characteristics that were different between these groups. Again, were donor age, race, and BMI. So this model included 49 genes, plus the three donor characteristics, and then the KDPI, or the Kidney Donor Profiling Index, as a predictive model. And ultimately, they found that the combination of this mixed model, this gene expression, plus this donor characteristics, were much better predictors of graft function at 24 months. They then took these and they did an external uh, validation cohort using QPCR. Um, They actually only used 13 of these genes that had been validated from the previous model in this validation cohort set. So it was 13 genes plus the three donor characteristics. And then uh, they compared these in these 96 external validation cohort patients to the other three models. Uh, And again, their findings were that this mixed model of these 13 genes plus the three donor characteristics seemed to be better at performing. Forming than the other models, including the uh, KDPI or the kidney donor uh, profiling index. So from this, they then calculate this the sort of this risk cal- score calculation of having low graph function at 24 months, again using these 13 genes plus three donor characteristics, and then they convert this uh, risk equation into a probability scale. And then they plot this as uh, so the probability of having low graft function in each patient. This is figure five, I believe. And they compare basically the use of this mixed gene expression and donor characteristic model versus the KDPI index score for each patient. And they find that um, the sensitivity and specificity of predicting low graft function at 24 months is much higher or much say better for the use of this mixed gene expression uh, donor characteristic model than it is with the use of the KDPI index and so Overall, I think there are sort of two key takeaways from their findings. One is that, yes, they present a predictive risk score that combines clinical variables as well as the donor gene markers that seem to predict long-term graft outcomes at 24 months after transplant fairly well. I think that their use of the training and the external validation cohort is excellent. I do think that um, their predictive score, risk score, seems to be superior to currently clinically used KDPI prediction score. Um, And then in terms of the overall clinical, impact, in fact, I think this is where I sort of have a question for the kidney experts in the group because I'm not sure how this is done in practice. I can envision a few things and I sort of had a few thoughts. Um, so one is that I can envision, you know, perhaps the need for sort of another external, completely independent validation cohort using perhaps the 13 genes plus the clinical donor characteristics or perhaps a few more of these before we sort of say, yes, you know, this seems like a better model than what is currently in use. But again, that's sort of a question for the kidney
0: answers. Roz, uh, okay, what do you think? as the kidney
2: <laughs> expert. So I, I really appreciate um, your really nice summary of these data, and I agree with you. I think there would not be any implementation until there's an independent, uh, you know, validation cohort. I know they did their own internal validation, but you know, and it's a very large cohort. So I think those are the positives uh, for this paper. And, you know, they have shown that there's additive value from doing the gene expression, Mm -hmm. you know, from the perspective of doing this and practically implementing. So suppose we all agree these are the 13 genes and this is what we're going to do. You know, how do you implement this and get it done quickly on a donor organ? And that's going to be tough because right now we don't really have I mean, you could do. PCR of these genes and and get it done, but not in a clear certified fashion. Could these potentially be targets to improve outcome? And and to me too, I you know I understand why they pick 24 months um, outcome. A lots so a lot of trials will pick 24 months, not a year and not five years. So we couldn't have them wait and wait and wait. But there's so much intervening stuff at two years. I sort of said, okay, you know, this is tough. I mean, I don't know if we're going to see great validation because anything can happen after the first year or after six months, for that matter of fact. So mm-hmm. Josh is the expert in gene expression profiling.
0: <laughs> so <laughs> no, any I mean, thoughts I, from I,
2: you? No,
0: I, mean, I think uh, what is always challenging is the unanticipated or, or the, the events that are at, occur after you do the let's say the gene expression score that you can't be controlled for that can impact the organ outcome and really all you know if I think this if this could be externally validated and could be logistically implemented it mm-hmm. it might be and those are big ifs for sure right. uh, I do think an additional information for the clinicians to make decisions or maybe how to treat patients. Mm-hmm. can be useful. So, um, or at least to understand maybe post-operatively that this was an increase, a further increased risk graph because of the gene expression. Yeah. Maybe there's um, modalities that could be implemented, or at least it should be, it, could, it would need to be studied kind of in a prospective trial really right. to, to see if it's beneficial or not.
1: Right. Um, so, I, uh, that was actually my my second thought is, you know, let's say there was, you know, a another uh, large independent, completely independent cohort validation, and this, you know, seems promising, you know, the next question would be how would it be used, you know, would it be used, for example, to say what organs we should not transplant, or would it simply be used as, okay, you know, this person has received Again, that is, I'll, I'll use the word subpar, although that's not exactly what I mean, but concerning uh, or at risk. Um, and so then we perhaps would either monitor them more closely or perhaps have a lower threshold for intervening than we would currently um, the practice. And then, of course, after that is, yes, you know, how would this be sort of um I'll use the word commercialized again, but you know they they discussed this, and certainly you know uh, having sort of these like either gen, gene chipsets or these like ninety six wall plates that are preloaded with either these thirteen genes or perhaps I assume they narrowed it out in the thirteen genes for a reason. It must be something about cost versus you know benefit uh, as well, and start having academic centers use this in a prospective manner, um, and then commercialize these. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think you you need to prove that this way of doing things is better than what what is currently being done in prospective fashion which means like a randomized control trial essentially um or or at least having the information available to the clinicians uh prospectively and and monitoring them so that you can you can kind of get a sense of in real time how this is going to work but it certainly is a a nice step forward i think yeah. you know
2: yeah really right. a well a well done study i i think we've sort of identified some of the issues. And again, I also always am cautious now, even though this is a, an approach I really like, is like not adding anything else to allocation. I mean, I think the idea would be maybe that this is more reassuring. It would be great to have a bigger spectrum of the type of donors because you really want to be assured that all these, let's get rid of the discards. Like, could we use this to to mitigate the discard rate we have <clears throat> in right, right now? That right. That would be, to me like an immediate impact that would be really positive as opposed to maybe saying, okay, well, this might affect you in two years, but- you know we'll, we'll say i mean great great summary and, really good uh, one
1: quick Go uh, this is sort of just the, the last takeaway you know point yeah. that i had and me because it, it applies somewhat to the research that i do is you know the assessment that the this differential transcript profile um uh that you know can also provide insight into sort of the biological processes that ultimately lead to graft dysfunction sure. to me that is definitely very interesting i actually specifically as i mentioned in lung transplant but i study a metabolic dysfunction in the innate immune system and its role in and graft dysfunction. And so to me, this sort of uh, as was you know triggering as, as this is interesting. And is this perhaps something that we can target to, for example, reduce the discard rate and or down the line improve graft function.
2: I bet you that data set is publicly available not that I, I know kidneys aren't lungs but um, might be something of interest to look a little more deeply oh, you did okay
1: no I that, that that was actually my thought is I need to look a little bit more deeply some of the findings mm-hmm. that they had are similar to what I'm seeing in in, in my work mm-hmm. so I, I definitely thought yeah I will
0: be going very back interesting to all, right, all right Roz thank, yeah, thank you so, um, uh, Marlene
1: yeah mm-hmm.
2: great Marlene well this is a We'll need your help. This is a basic science paper um, from Anne He from Katja Katja's lab from Charite in, in Berlin. And it examines this um, concept of implant aging, which is a dysfunctional, dif- as we age, there's sort of, I w- I don't want to say dysfunctional, it's part of physiologic aging where there's sort of a multi-generational, multi generational, um, multi modal dimensional degeneration of the immune response. And as someone that's starting to age, I'm going, whoa, okay. That makes me feel really good. And, and this has been really examined in the notions of chronic inflammation in some diseases and also um, immunologic responses to viral infections, uh, including COVID. So this paper is trying to evaluate the possibility that there is renal inflamm aging in, uh, in so far as that may be a trigger for the less good outcomes that we have with um, older organs And so, um, there is a hypothesis. This group has previously shown that tissue resident CD8 memory T cells exist in human kidneys and accumulate with chronological age, while the resident CD4 cells um, really correlate more with function. And that's not a paper I looked up before. So, forgive me, I'll I'll have to take a look at it. And so they hypothesize that these differences in uh, tissue resident uh, lymphocytes may affect responses to the graft, but also that there may be biological intrinsic differences within the kidney parenchyma. So in their initial studies, they use a lot of techniques. They initially use really nice flow cytometry, but use some more high-dimensional analyses in figures one and two and begin to identify in naive kidneys, uh, young being eight to 12 weeks and old being greater than 20 months. So again, think of a a mouse's lifespan of about two years. So um, probably that's probably equivalent to about 60 years old in a mouse. And then they find that the older kidneys that are not transplanted, of course, have higher distributions of CD8 positive T-cells and a lower frequency of cd4 cells and 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 then this other some other oddities like lower double negative t cells and natural killer cells and a higher proportion of dendritic cells they can detect and i'll just say that as a person that has in her career isolated lymphocytes from the kidney this is this is hard and they've done like an amazing job to take a non transplanted otherwise healthy kidney and use very very sensitive uh, analysis to pick up these intrarenal lymphocyte compartment differences and with these differences it, you know there's also a reduced number of c4 regular story cells in these graphs and coupling that with more effector memory cells that they identify they wondered if this could affect transplant responses there's also another interesting finding that they found is that that though the natural killer population uh, itself was reduced there's a, an activation cytotoxicity receptor called NKG2D, and they actually found that the population of NK cells had an increased proportion of this, as well as other markers, CXCR6 and CD49. And I only bring this up because they noted that those are really NK cells that are typically found in the liver, and the liver, we know, has its own regenerative capacity So these cells um, also have some altered functionality. I think they're more reactive than than sort of a standard NK population and maybe leading these older organs to be more inflammatory. So needless to say, they did do vascularized mouse kidney transplants. Kudos to them because it's a tough technique to do technically, and they show in previous data in this paper, we won't get into it, that around seven days, all the graft infiltrating cells are really of host origin and that um, you really don't, it's hard for them to detect really donor kidney-oriented lymphocytes now. So everything that you see in the kidney at the transplant is now replaced. And what they find in the older allografted animals at day seven is a higher frequency of CD4 effector memory cells. And that recipient-derived CDHs that are in the graft have a higher degranulation capacity based on specific markers like functional markers like Granzyme B and perforin and interferon gamma. And I would say that though the inflammatory responses in general did not appear quantitatively or qualitatively to look different at day seven between older and younger grafts, the actual composition of the cells was slightly different. There, and I'll say this is sort of subtle, because if you look at the histology of these graphs on figure six, they don't really see much at day seven. They see maybe some glomerulitis that's more frequent in the older kidney, but the notions of acute tubular necrosis or acute tubular damage. Are really not different. And they do see an upregulation on proximal prox- prox- tube epithelial cells in the older graphs of class two expression, CD40 expression, CD80. So I'll, I'll just pause here to say that when they saw these over higher rates of inflammatory markers on proximal tube epithelial cells, which is the target of rejection, they actually took those cells out. They did that and they did some glomerular endothelial culture cells. And it's a little bit beyond the scope today to just basically say that. At the start of their culture process, things were upregulated, but by the time they did culture time points, they really couldn't maintain that phenotype, suggesting there's something specific about the intrarenal milieu that they could not recapitulate in culture. Now, granted, I would have loved to say oh, it all worked out, and this is a neat and tidy story, but it really is not. They also use um, a drug, a senolytic, which is supposed to reduce senescence called ABT-263. Navitoclax. it's apparently being used in phase one and two trials, of course, in cancer, and it blocks BCL-2, so BCL-2... Uh, it inhibits BCL2 pathway of cellular apoptosis. And I know some groups are using it to alter effective memory versus T regulatory cells being present. And so again, they look at graphs at day seven, they show some changes in the composition of cells under this treatment, that novel population of NK cells seems to be somewhat lower now, and maybe the profile of NK cells within the graph looks less inflammatory. But And they also identify a reduction in T cell subsets producing interferon. So it seems less inflammatory, but they don't see any difference in terms of graft histology or function at day seven. So they actually went on to leave animals to go out to day 28. And um, they said there were really no significant differences in histology. But they actually showed significantly improved, uh, function based on serum creatinine and urea nitrogen. But if you look at the figures, there doesn't seem to be really histologically any difference. So to sum it up, the treatment with these aid, this agent really seemed to improve function, although, uh, the inflammation was still very similar in these graphs, but the compositions are subtle and different. So. Um, I'll say that this is not a neat and tidy story. When I agreed to do this paper, I thought, oh, we're, you know, I've seen some of the solidic data. It's all going to be sunshine and roses and it all makes sense. And I have to say that I've spent some time thinking about it. So I think it's clear that these older graphs have an unusual resident population, probably related to our own, the donors' intrinsic aging. And that these graphs appear to alter the the typical alloimmune response and probably innate immune response as well, based on these NK cell different populations. They were not able to recapitulate what they were seeing ex vivo in vitro. That happens. I mean, you can't always do everything in vitro, and maybe it is something specific to the intrarenal milieu that is required to maintain these unusual populations, I thought it was interesting to see a dissociation between function and histology. Now, many of us rely on histology to tell us what's going on in the graph, but, it, but when we think about subclinical rejection, we know that that's when you have a, a dissociation of bad, you know, stable function with badness in the graph. Here it's a little bit the opposite, but regardless, I'm not entirely sure I understand that. I think they were rationalizing that based on the types of cells that were populating. And again, they use pretty sensitive, you know, by flow, which is more sensitive than histology or immunohistochemistry. And then they use these very, you know, cool analytic techniques by uh, using flow cytometry. That was able to really now identify new patient, uh, new populations. And so maybe there's a point now where we have to be thinking about how to be analyzing. Histologic graphs, and I'm not putting in a plug for any platform in particular in terms of, say, gene expression. The syndeletic therapy was interesting. I wondered if there would have been a bigger impact if they had treated the donor more frequently, or maybe they have to treat the recipient. And again, I didn't point out earlier that the recipients were sort of considered young. Um, they had to switch their model around by strain. Because of the lack of availability of older mice, so they were really doing Balb C into Black Six for you aficionados, and um, and they didn't have old and young Balb C donors, so they switched the model from their initial observations, and they did not examine older recipients, which might be another important combination. And they have a nice figure, a drawing that summarizes everything I said on pay on Figure
0: Ten. All right. Well, uh, Marlene, do you have any comments from a basic science standpoint on this paper
1: No, I mean, it actually sounds very interesting the, the one question that I had was uh, was actually one that you mentioned regarding the dissociation between the function and the histology in terms of you know, could it be that uh, you know sometimes the histology may delay the function but it sounds like you're telling me that in patients clinically, it's actually usually the opposite.
2: yeah, um, I mean we'll see rejection before we see functional change, which is a whole you know clinical question. Uh, in terms of how to monitor it and again i tried to tie this back to their notion of differences in cd4 eight you know cd4 t cell memory cells in graphs associated with aging and the cd4 resident memory cells correlating with function but i really had difficulty sort of teasing that out in terms of all the data that was presented so mm-hmm. i think there'll probably be more to come from this group Again, you know, you'd like to always say, okay, well, this is, sounds like a, a promising therapy. Let's move forward. But I think um, again, these are technically challenging experiments. So really, kudos to them both the models as well as the analytical aspects of the resident macro uh, lymphocytes in the kidney, which has not really been done very well before.
0: Okay, well, thanks. Uh, I think we're going to finish up with a clinical paper that I think had some interesting findings. So. This was from the Baylor group in Dallas, ready at all. This is a single center analysis of organ offers and workload for liver and kidney allocation. So, uh this this was interesting because it was sort of a a, a single center's experience with the impact of the allocation changes in both liver, which were bef- before uh, a couple years before the changes in kidney, but nevertheless the implementation of the acuity circles and the organ distribution significantly changing and w- what the impact that was on a single center and um, the workload that was sort of created by this new system. And did the workload result in, you know, a a benefit, the increased work needed to um, deal with an increased number of organ offers? Did that lead to, you know, more transplants, less discards, et cetera, for, for this, this large volume center. And so the, the, the group, Put this together to to look at both liver and kidney again because the uh, allocation models changed um, not too far apart from each other, and uh, they wanted to to look at look at this impact on on their local center, but try to do some extrapolation to how this might also be present. Uh, this situation may also be present at other centers. So um, they go on. Their methodology was really quite. Straightforward. They retrospectively collected liver and kidney organ offers from Baylor Transplant Institute from May 2019 to July 2021, using the UNOS Care Acceptance and Refusal Evaluation Tool, the Care Tool, and they and they collected data on the organ offer, including all the different characteristics of the organ offers. And then what they did was uh, they did a time study experiment over a, a week in July of 2021, where they um, recorded basically all the time spent by transplant surgeons, coordinators, answering service coordinators, all the personnel who manage organ donor offer acceptance and logistics over a week. And to try to estimate how that might look like over a month and kind of extrapolate how much time is being spent with the new, with the new system, uh, really on kind of a granular level of, of the different, um, staff members involved in these organ offers. And so the, the first thing that was not surprising is that the total number of liver and kidney donor offers per month increased by 140%. But what they reported is that their number of transplant organs did not change. So there was a significant amount of effort put into or a significant increase in the number of organ offers. But this did not result for this center in increase in the number of transplanted organs. And this was both in, in, in liver and kidney. Um, they also looked at kind of this this um, the the ratio um, or the or the, um, the the difference between those organs that were offered and those that were ultimately transplanted w- was fairly significant. Um, if you look at Figure One, is really nice because they they show here the change in the both the liver and the kidney allocation, the circle based uh, allocation that was implemented, and liver was in. Uh, beginning of twenty twenty and kidney was um uh, march of twenty twenty one and you can see that the the number of offers far exceeded the number of of transplants were done uh, where the transplant numbers really stayed stable where the number of offers and then also offers resulting in discard increased significantly too then this uh week long experiment where they looked at what everybody is doing during that week and 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 um just showed the, the the significant number of hours, almost um, doubling the number of hours that everybody worked. Uh, the time that was spent that almost every member, the surgeon, the coordinator, the answering service coordinator, uh, spent almost doubled uh, because of these this increase in, in transplant center offers. Um, so obviously, there's a. Uh, this is one center, a large transplant center. It's in Texas. Um, there may be differences between this this center and and other transplant centers. I'm sure there are, and maybe there. You know, some of the results could be their own efficiency issues. But I I think they made a case that this is this observation is not likely unique to their center. They they mentioned a number of different reasons for why this is a, a challenging situation. Um, and how to sort of address this. Um, and this, there's actually a, a nice editorial that was, um, written by, um, Adler and Hussein, um, appropriately titled, More is Better Until It Is Worse. So driving home the point that, that there's a, that centers are not, um, if the transplant numbers are not increasing, but the amount of workload is significantly increasing, there's, there's no real, uh, the, the, finances here become very difficult to sort of justify and the inefficiencies in the system are really really being shown here that that centers this center particularly um is putting in a lot of work for little gain uh, for their own transplant patients understanding that the system itself seems to overall have benefit the whole organ transplant population across the US but on an individual center basis, it's significantly increasing the workload. And um, the the editorial goes through some really salient points, and in some ways, that may be able to provide some solutions for for this issue. Um, particularly, it'd be nice to see if this same issue is occurring in other centers, and and more data would be good. But maybe to have things like advanced filters that could adapt to transplant centers um making the uh the offer filters explorer a mandatory requirement better prediction of which organs might be hardest to place may help facilitate fast track offers to centers that have that are more willing to transplant them so uh, more targeted approaches rather than just offering these organs up uh, really broadly that are ultimately not going to end up in a significant way at local centers But really this, if this continues, the, the editorial drives home the point that is, if it's not addressed thoughtfully, some centers who would do this really well are going to dominate. And then there'll be geographic inequities that will, that will favor those who are better resourced than other centers and create more of an inequity problem. And so I don't really have the answers here. I think it's really driving home the point of some of the unintended consequences of this, the new allocation systems, the, the local workload um, on the centers. Um, I know I actually showed this paper to uh, both today to our liver and our kidney pre-transplant coordinators, and they confirmed that this is really has been a significant increase in workload. Um, our our center numbers have gone up here at Northwestern, but I think the the workload may supersede that um, or not be really equivalent, sort of the bang for the buck in a way. I don't know at, at Nebraska or Wash U if you, if this is something similar you're seeing, but, um, this certainly, if this is a universal problem, there's going to be a lot of burnout across the board from, from centers if, if you're not seeing the numbers of transplants go up despite all the effort.
2: So I know there's been significant adjustments in the filters, you know, in terms yeah. of, 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 some of the workload. I mean, I, I think that I can't really comment because I think our organ offers have really changed with the new, with the kidney allocation changes. So I sort of feel like the workload may be somewhat different now than it had been uh, previously. So uh, I don't know. I mean, it's it's sort of an interesting study. I would never have thought of doing this to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, you know, it's interesting. People are pretty clever in our field, which is great. So we, you know, is there a way to clean this up and make it that we're spending more time on the, on those things that are probably more valuable, uh, in terms of organs we know we're going to take that kind of thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and just to add that I, you know, uh, can't comment on um, the kidney and, and liver uh, transplant. Unfortunately, I'm not as familiar uh, with that, even here at WashU, but that, you know, I do think, especially in the last couple of years, there's been a significant sort of a robust interest in studying not only systems processes, but burnout within healthcare workers on all fronts, sure. right? And this sort of seems to be in that sense. So not only sort of the cost-benefit analysis and the benefit towards our patients if the transplants aren't actually going up, but also what that in turn will be to our healthcare population, our clinic coordinators, our transplant, you know, hmm. uh, in terms of not only work hours, what has to give for us to be able to do this, and then ultimately burnouts and any other uh, circumstance, uh, circumstances. that come
0: It'd from. really be nice to see national data here because um, mm-hmm. they, they make the claim that this is Probably going on everywhere, but I'm not so, I'm not so sure about that. There's, there's got to yeah. probably be some, some places that have seen, um, you know, really not seen this. So it, it and maybe it's regional or, and maybe yeah. it, you know, again, resources, resource specific at each center, but it'd be nice to see broader data outside of the center. Nevertheless, they're highlighting an issue that I could be important, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, something to really keep mindful of, especially. You know, wellness at, at, of the teams at each center can really needs to be uh, addressed. All right. Well, great discussion. Thank you, Marlene and Roz for going through these papers. And we will see you next time uh, at for our last one of 2022, December. And, uh, again, thanks everybody for uh, listening in. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.